0: Hey, it's Guy here, and today's episode is called Dialogue and Exchange. It aired back in October of 2017, but it's just as relevant now. It's all about the growing ideological divide in the U.S. and around the world, and how we might think about bridging the gap. This is the TED Radio Hour. Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about dialogue and exchange. Because we're living at a time of pretty intense polarization. A lot of people are angry and confused, and we don't understand how or why people we know can think the way they do. And all of this means that we aren't really talking to each other. But is there a real argument to be made that we don't really have a choice. And if we don't have a choice, how do we do it? So let's start with a story about a dialogue that involved one of the most polarizing fringe groups in the U.S. So can you uh, introduce yourself, like your name and and what you do? Uh,
2: My name is Megan Phelps Roper, and what do I do? (laughs) This is always the hardest question, because right now, like, whenever I have like a a sticker or something with my name on it, and and they put a title on it. It just says, former member of Westboro Baptist Church.
0: So you might have heard of Westboro Baptist Church. It's based in Kansas, and its members picket the funerals of American soldiers. They celebrate natural disasters and tragedies as acts of God. And they believe God hates homosexuality.
2: Obey God or you're going to hell. The end.
0: This is actually a clip of Megan Phelps Roper at a protest in 2011. Hilarious. It,
2: one it, one is is it, is it is a commandment. It is a commandment. We protested every single day. It was what we did. We picketed a lot of sporting events. We picketed, um, you know, concerts. <laughs> you know, pop stars who, you know, promote adultery and, and things like that.
1: You got more perversion to
0: When you would have, like, these hostile shouting matches on the picket line, did you ever listen to the people on the other side? No.
2: Most of the time, you know, I would walk away from those conversations um, feeling like I had won. I I never set out to have my mind changed.
0: Do you recognize the person that you once were?
2: I do. It's, It's very strange. Um... I watch it, and it's such a strange feeling because I know exactly where I was coming from and why I was saying what I was saying and why I believed it so strongly. And I also know exactly why I now think it's wrong and destructive.
0: Until her mid-20s, these were the only exchanges Megan had with the outside world, shouting back and forth, treating the other side with scorn and contempt, And if Megan hadn't engaged in a different kind of conversation, she might not ever have left her church. Megan tells her story from the TED stage.
2: I was a blue-eyed, chubby-cheeked five-year-old when I joined my family on the picket line for the first time. I'd stand on a street corner in the heavy Kansas humidity, surrounded by a few dozen relatives, with my tiny fists clutching a sign that I couldn't read yet. Gays are worthy of death. This was the beginning. Our protest soon became a daily occurrence and an international phenomenon, and as a member of Westboro Baptist Church, I became a fixture on picket lines across the country. This was the focus of our whole lives. This was the only way for me to do good in a world that sits in Satan's lap. And like the rest of my 10 siblings, I believed what I was taught with all my heart, and I pursued Westboro's agenda with a special sort of zeal.
0: For people who don't know anything about Westboro Baptist Church, what? how big is it?
2: Uh, Westboro is a church of about um, 70 to 80 people.
0: Wow, so small.
2: Yes. Most of them are my immediate and extended family. It was started by my grandfather, Fred Phelps, and my family was incredibly close. So I was surrounded by um, people who loved me and whom I loved, and I was convinced that we were right.
0: When when was the first time you were confronted with somebody from, like, outside your bubble, you know, who, who challenged your views and who wanted to actually talk to you, talk to you about, you know, the way you felt and, and, and wanted to try to convince you that you were wrong?
2: I I encountered a lot of people um, over the years who, who wanted to challenge my ideas and the church's ideas. Um, but the problem was that, uh, you know, when you're standing on a picket line, um even if even if you have somebody who really wants to have a dialogue it's really hard to get past you know shouty talking points i had been raised to be wary of these people right mm. and and to even especially be wary of their kindness because then they're you know you, you sort of see them as crafty deceivers like people who are just trying to you know sweet talk you into into doing the wrong thing and so it wasn't until i got on twitter that things really started to change for me.
0: Wait, Twitter? Yeah. Because Twitter is not exactly the, like a place that people think of when they think of civility and dialogue.
2: Right. (laughs) Initially, the people I encountered on Twitter were just as hostile as I expected. They were the digital version of the screaming hordes I'd been seeing at protests since I was a kid. But in the midst of that digital brawl, a strange pattern developed. Someone would arrive at my profile with the usual rage and scorn, I would respond with a custom mix of Bible verses, pop culture references, and smiley faces. They would be understandably confused and caught off guard. But then a conversation would ensue. And it was civil, full of genuine curiosity on both sides. Sometimes the conversation even bled into real life. People I'd sparred with on Twitter would come out to the picket line uh, to see me when I protested in their city. There was no confusion about our positions, but the line between friend and foe was becoming blurred. We'd started to see each other as human beings, and it changed the way we spoke to one another. It took time, but eventually these conversations planted seeds of doubt in me. My friends on Twitter took the time to understand Westboro's doctrines, and in doing so, they were able to find inconsistencies I'd missed my entire life. Why did we advocate the death penalty for gays, when Jesus said, "'Let he who is without sin cast the first stone.'" How could we claim to love our neighbor while at the same time praying for God to destroy them? These realizations were life-altering. Once I saw that we were not the ultimate arbiters of divine truth but flawed human beings, I couldn't justify our actions, especially our cruel practice of protesting funerals and celebrating human tragedy. And eventually, it made it impossible for me to stay. In spite of overwhelming grief and terror, I left Westboro in 2012. In those days just after I left, the instinct to hide was almost paralyzing. I wanted to hide from the judgment of my family, who would never speak to me again, and I wanted to hide from the world I'd rejected for so long, people who had no reason at all to give me a second chance after a lifetime of antagonism. That period was full of turmoil, but One part I've returned to often is a surprising realization I had during that time. That it was a relief and a privilege to let go of the harsh judgments that instinctively ran through my mind about nearly every person I saw. I realized that now I needed to learn. I needed to listen.
0: It seems like you could not have changed your life and left the church and... And forced yourself to rethink everything you believed without those conversations, without that exchange of ideas.
2: Absolutely. I. And maybe decades down the road, maybe somehow I would have ar- found a way to argue myself into this thing. Maybe. But I doubt it.
0: It's interesting because… I mean, lots of people say, hey, you know, I don't want to have a conversation with this person who has these reprehensible views because I don't want to acknowledge that those views are are legitimate in any way. And you can understand why somebody would, would feel that way against, you know, somebody who was super hateful, who, who wanted to hurt you simply because of who you are, what you were born as. But on the other hand, you're saying, actually, you still have to engage those people because you have to understand how their mind is working in order to explain why that is wrong.
2: Right. I mean, and I'm not saying like, you know, every oppressed person has to go to the person who is oppressing them and explain, you know, why they're wrong. But some some people have to do that. Like if we want these ideas, we we, we want them to we want them to die. <laughs> you know, we want them to or, or to be at least the very least on the very very margins of society. I think that we ha- we have to be able to effectively argue against them. You're not letting go of your truth, but but understanding someone else's, you you need that if you're going to build, you know, a bridge and 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 get across and get through. This has been at the front of my mind lately because I can't help but see in our public discourse so many of the same destructive impulses that ruled my former church. We celebrate tolerance and diversity more than at any other time in memory, and still we grow more and more divided. We want good things, but the path we've chosen looks so much like the one I walked away from four years ago. I remember this path. It will not take us where we want to go. We have to talk and listen to people we disagree with, and I will always be inspired to do so by those people I encountered on Twitter apparent enemies who became my beloved friends. My friends on Twitter didn't abandon their beliefs or their principles, only their scorn. They channeled their infinitely justifiable offense and came to me with pointed questions tempered with kindness and humor. They approached me as a human being, and that was more transformative than two full decades of outrage, disdain, and violence.
0: I'm wondering how you have those difficult conversations with people who are, you know, kind of impenetrable. I mean, you left the church. I mean, you, your family doesn't talk to you anymore. So is there is there any way you could ever have a dialogue with them about the things you believe now?
2: I do. I mean, that's part of what I use Twitter for now. It's it's a way for me to, you know, I still, um, you know, follow my families. They have, you know, a few dozen Twitter accounts. Um and I read what they have to say. And I do reach out and I do try to challenge them. And every interaction we have is an opportunity to you know, change their minds so that they're not being uh, an active force for destruction in the world. I feel so strongly passionate and hopeful and optimistic that, of what humans can accomplish. Like I mean, just from my own experience, looking back, I was incredibly closed-minded. I, I was and I was blinded by certainty. My family sees what I'm doing now and thinks that I'm, you know, basically satanic. But they're definitely listening. People can change and, and I just feel incredibly hopeful.
0: Megan Phelps Roper left the Westboro Baptist Church in 2012. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. Our show today, ideas about dialogue and exchange. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Salesforce. Today's customers want innovative personal experiences from companies. And Salesforce, the customer relationship management solution, can help. Now you can deliver the personalized experiences customers want by uniting your marketing, sales, commerce, service, and IT on an integrated CRM platform. Learn how Salesforce brings customers and companies together at salesforce.com. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com slash ideas. Jessica?
2: Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage.
0: It has already been an eventful summer in politics.
2: Yeah, between the 2020 debates and the president's battle over immigration, there's a lot going on.
0: And when there's news you need to know about, the NPR Politics Podcast is there to tell you what happened.
2: Not to mention we're hitting the road so you can meet all of the 2020 contenders.
0: Oh, NPR is going to drive me completely crazy. (laughs) The NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe! It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about Dialogue and exchange, and we couldn't possibly do a show about dialogue without talking about politics. Okay, so Rob, I, I'm, I think I have this feeling that uh, that the United States is so divided, is uh-huh. more divided than at any other time in history. But but then, like, I go to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, to 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 see, you know the historical sites there, and, and, and you're reminded that the country was really divided back then. And so then I think, well, maybe we're really not as divided as we think we we are,
3: but 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 are we? Well, I agree with you that uh, things are not as bad as the Civil War. Uh, but if that's the baseline, you know, then uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Ooh. a tough baseline. Yeah, but they're very bad. They're very bad. This is Rob Willer. I'm a professor of sociology and psychology at Stanford University.
0: And Rob spends a lot of time studying how Americans communicate about politics and how they could do it a lot better.
3: It used to be that liberals and conservatives liked themselves more than the other group, you know. But uh, the level of that difference has has really grown. And it's not the case that we like our own group so much more than we used to. It's more that we dislike the other group more and more every year. (laughs) Uh, the levels of political division we see in the country are profoundly destabilizing to our government, to our economy, to our culture, and it's just all this hate and bitterness that circulates in our country, and it it's taxing to everyone, and it's gonna it, it could get worse. So, what do we do? Well, okay. So for the last several years, I've been really interested in this question of how liberals and conservatives talk when they're trying to persuade one another and how they should talk if they wanted to be more successful. And in a nutshell, we what we find is that liberals and conservatives, when they go to persuade one another on a political issue, uh, that they tend to make arguments in terms of their own values. So when we do research on this, we find that liberals care a lot about equality, uh, fairness, protecting vulnerable people from harm, social justice. Hmm. And then conservatives, they care a lot about things like group loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, moral purity, religious sanctity, moral considerations that liberals care less about than conservatives do. And so, you know, one way we can think about our very divided political topography in this country is that it rests on top of this equally divided moral topography. Hmm. So each side basically sees the world in a totally different way. That's right. And in effect, they reach out to persuade as though they were looking into a mirror, just sort of reciting the arguments that they themselves found persuasive. And if you think about it, that's maybe how you approach political conversations is you're like, oh, okay, I've got, this is this is the reason yeah, that I have this right. position. And right? I would assume that all I need to do is articulate that. And you would say, "Ah, oh, now I see the light. Exactly. It's yeah. a totally right? intuitive approach, <laughs> you know, Uh, The problem is that that argument that you or I find persuasive might not be persuasive to somebody else. And in fact, for, you know, hot button issues like gay marriage or, you know, tax reform or, you know, the environment, people have heard the primary arguments on the other side. And if they were going to be persuaded by those arguments, they they would already be on your side. Mm. And so instead, what you got to do is you got to try to find new arguments. Here's more from Rob Willer on the TED stage. So what would work better? Well, we believe it's a technique that we call moral reframing, and we've studied it in a series of experiments. In one of these experiments, we recruited liberals and conservatives to a study where they read one of three essays before having their environmental attitudes surveyed. And the first of these essays was a relatively conventional pro-environmental essay that invoked the liberal values of care and protection from harm. It said things like, in many important ways, we are causing real harm to the places we live in, and it is essential that we take steps now to prevent further destruction from being done to our earth. Another group of participants were assigned to read a really different essay that was designed to tap into the conservative value of moral purity. It was a pro-environmental essay as well, and it said things like, Keeping our forests, drinking water, and skies pure is of vital importance. We should regard the pollution of the places we live in to be disgusting. And reducing pollution can help us preserve what is pure and beautiful about the places we live. And then we had a third group of participants that were assigned to read just a non-political essay. It was just a comparison group. We could get a baseline. And what we found when we surveyed people about their environmental attitudes afterwards, we found that liberals didn't really matter what essay they read. They tended to have highly pro-environmental attitudes regardless. Liberals are on board for environmental protection. Conservatives, however, were significantly more supportive of progressive environmental policies and environmental protection if they had read the Moral Purity essay than if they read one of the other two essays. We even found that conservatives who read the Moral Purity Essay were significantly more likely to say that they believed in global warming and were concerned about global warming, even though this essay didn't even mention global warming. That's just a related environmental issue. But that's how robust this moral reframing effect was. And, you know, we've studied this on a whole slew of different political issues. So if you want to move liberals to the right on conservative policy issues like military spending and making English the official language of the U.S., you're going to be more persuasive if you tie those conservative policy issues to liberal moral values like equality and fairness. And if you want to move conservatives on issues like same-sex marriage or national health insurance, it helps to tie these liberal political issues to conservative values like patriotism and moral purity. All these studies have the same clear message. If you want to persuade someone on some policy, it's helpful to connect that policy to their underlying moral values.
0: I mean, in theory, it, it does make sense, right, that, that you would sort of use moral reframing to, to make your case. But it, that can be really hard, especially if, if the person you're arguing with um, supports something that you find morally reprehensible. To, to then co-opt their language to make the case against them is hard.
3: Yeah, I think that that's that's exactly right. And I think it's important to note that moral reframing is not necessarily a good technique that should be used under all circumstances. You know, sometimes you do need to draw a line and say, no, you know, the reason that we should educate, you know, people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds in the same public schools is because of the same basic Dignity that all individuals possess, like it has to be an equality of basic human worth. That is the you know at least one of the major reasons for that policy. You know, and we got to fight that fight too. You might you might decide that you might decide that it might take a little longer to win that policy. You know, but you might say that we got to win this moral fight as well as this policy fight. You know, hand in glove. But I think other times you might say no. You know, like we need to just get this policy. through, and it's okay for people to agree with it for different reasons. Yeah. I wonder if we could
0: rethink the idea of dialogue altogether. So, you know, so it's it's less about politics and like current events Yeah, and just more about like general human experiences.
3: I hope so. I hope we do see that. You know, one reason that this technique of moral reframing that we think is attractive about it is you can still have an opinion while using it, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to just meet in the soft, milk-toasty center of the uh, political divide, you know, where nobody gets what they want. Um, instead, you, you can keep your position, perhaps very strong position, yeah. uh, but you make an argument that resonates with the person you're trying to convince. Hmm. And so I, I think that's an attractive thing because people feel very strongly about politics in America. Uh, there's going to need to be some sort of large-scale collective action in the U.S. in support of respect across the political divide, or (laughs) consideration of other perspectives, or or whatever it is. And And I don't think that, I mean, I have my own politics and I'm not particularly near the center of the ideological distribution, but I would like to be able to find a way to connect. So a technique that allows me to have an opinion while also potentially persuading somebody is attractive.
0: Rob Willer is a social psychologist at Stanford. You can see his full talk at TED.com. And if you want to find out more about some of the ideas that inspired his research, you should also check out Jonathan Haidt and his TED Talks, also at TED.com. Have you, have you ever been in a, in a position or a situation where you've actually changed someone's mind in, in a dialogue?
4: Well, you know, with my wife this morning, I think I came pretty far. <laughs>
0: This is Jonas Garstora. From 2005 until 2012, he was the foreign minister of Norway. And as Norway's top diplomat, his job was to create dialogue, sometimes between countries, sometimes between groups, but always in conflict.
4: As a Norwegian politician, it has really been devoting my political life to the notion of dialogue. I believe that dialogue is the alternative to make diverse societies as we live in today work.
0: Now, even though it's a tiny country, Norway's diplomats have had a pretty big role in recent decades. They've helped to mediate conflicts in the Philippines and Sri Lanka, Colombia. And probably most famously, Norway worked on a peace process between Israelis and Palestinians called the Oslo Accords.
4: And after we had experiences with the Oslo Accords uh, in the Middle East, Norway has been able in some processes to assist those parties who say, and have the courage to say, okay, let's see if we can choose another way. We have been working hard to professionalize our approach and method in dealing with conflict. Uh, and uh, the advantage here is that we come from a position where we cannot force people to do anything. We could not sit down around any table and say, now listen to me, or if you don't, I will cause you harm. Right. So what we could do was to say, the question has to be asked, should this go on? Should we continue on this downward spiral? We have some expertise in process. We have some expertise in assisting parties to move beyond conflict and start to repair. If that can be of use, we have a responsibility to share it.
0: And Jonas shared the idea of using dialogue to resolve big conflicts on the TED stage.
4: What is dialogue really about? When I enter into dialogue, I really hope that the other side would pick up my points of view, that I will impress upon them my opinions and my values. I cannot do that unless I send the signals that I will be open to listen to the other side's signals. Now, I am not naive. You cannot talk to everybody all the time, and there are times you should walk, and sometimes you may need to fight. And I wouldn't say that that is the wrong thing in all circumstances, sometimes you have to. But that strategy seldom takes you very far. The alternative is a strategy of engagement and principled dialogue. And I believe we need to strengthen this approach in modern diplomacy. We have a large deficit in dealing and understanding modern conflict. Not only between states, but also within states. Dialogue is not easy, not between individuals, not between groups, not between governments, but it is very necessary. Do you think that everybody
0: should be willing to talk to anyone else?
4: Not at any moment, based on any condition. I think, you know, you have to make that decision. My point when I was foreign minister was that I experienced that we invested far too little into the notion of talking and distinguishing talking from compromising. So talking to the other side, trying to understand their interests, should be separated from making decisions, concessions, or, you know, appearing weak. Uh, so we train our diplomats to be in these situations. A good diplomat should be able to go in and sit down with a very nasty opponent and still be able to come out there with a, a position that has not been weakened, but rather strengthened. When, when you sit down with somebody, it's
0: your, there's an implicit notion that you are willing to compromise.
4: It's sort of an understood rule. Is it? Why is it? I mean, that, that I think is one of the fundamental questions. You should be trained, and you should have the self-confidence of not compromising when you sit down. There can be made preconditions about it, that talking does not mean agreeing, and you you explore before you decide. Can we engage the other side uh, in a process where you can move them towards solutions that, from your point of view, enhances your interests? My point is that you don't have to be neutral to talk. And you don't have to agree when you sit down with the other side. But if you don't talk, you cannot engage the other side. And the other side which you're going to engage is the one with whom you profoundly disagree. Prime Minister Rabin said when he engaged the Oslo process, you don't make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. It's hard, but it is necessary. We who are diplomats, we are trained to deal with conflicts between states and issues between states. But the picture is changing, and we are seeing that there are new key players coming onto the scene. We loosely call them groups. They may represent social, religious, political, economic, military realities, and we struggle with how to deal with them. During the last decade, we have been in a mode where dealing with a group was conceptually and politically dangerous. And groups were often immediately labeled terrorists. And who would talk to terrorists? The West, as I would see it, comes out of that decade weakened because we didn't understand the group. So we've spent more time on focusing why we should not talk to others than finding out how we talk to others. But if we refuse to talk to these new groups, we will further radicalization we will make the road from violent activities into politics harder to travel and the way they did with their conflicts rapidly spread to other countries so in a way it is everybody's business okay so if you, if you ignore
0: a faction in a conflict that you think is a terrorist group and you don't you know you don't talk to them because you don't negotiate with terrorists you, you're essentially saying that 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 could radicalize that group, like that could make the problem worse.
4: Well, that depends very much on the setting, you know, uh, and I would not generalize. But but my question would rather be this. Can there be a process which is not rewarding violence, but which is illustrating that there are incentives for groups who belong to that camp that you describe to move out of that camp and into what you would call more constructive, peaceful problem-solving? If those avenues exist, let's try to explore them. I mean, let me say, it's hard to argue against people who say, I don't deal with people who kill children or who blow up civilians. And I can understand that. But you can devise alternatives and options that the people who are represented by these groups will turn around and say, well, hey, maybe this is better for our children. Maybe this is better for the future.
0: When you look out at the at the world today, um, are you optimistic about the... Um the ability of us, of humans, of, of the leaders of, of countries to to negotiate, to move things forward and to resolve conflicts in a, in a negotiated way, in a, in a diplomatic way?
4: Well, I mean, the obvious answer to that at the first strike here is no, because yeah. you see conflicts which are deadlocked and how are you going to move forward? But let me approach it from another angle. There is far less conflict in today's world than there was, you know, years back in history. So there is a lot of what I would call in-baked conflict uh, resolution ability among people and communities that we should salute, although they don't hit the headlines. There are a lot of conflicts that don't become deadly conflicts because there are prevention, you know, happening along the road. So one should never lose the optimistic approach that this is possible. I mean, I think it is more constructive to (laughs) approach these issues by looking for the elements where you can be if not optimistic, at least hopeful, that you can make a difference in a different way.
0: Jonas Garstura was the foreign minister of Norway until 2012. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about dialogue and exchange. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
2: Americans kind of owe recycling to the mafia, and a huge mistake by this guy.
0: Garbage in New York, that was like a controlled substance. There was a cartel that controlled the flow of garbage.
1: Why we started recycling on NPR's Planet Money podcast.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about dialogue and exchange. And in some ways, it might seem like we're already doing a lot of that. On the phone, through texts, in social media.
1: Right. I think we trick ourselves into thinking we are because we're talking more. Yeah. And in more different ways. But we're not actually having conversations. This is journalist Celeste Headley. And I'm the host of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Broadcasting.
0: Celeste also wrote a book called We Need to Talk. Yeah, which usually makes people afraid. Oh, my God. If somebody comes up to me and says... (laughs) We need to talk. I'm fr- my yeah. heart starts to race. I'm freaking out.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I want to reclaim that actually. Hmm. Um because we need to start actually talking to one another, not at one another.
0: Okay, so obviously a lot of us are not doing this, right? Yeah. Like at, at this point in our history, a lot of people have a hard time talking and exchanging ideas and, and hearing other points of view. So where do you even start?
1: Okay, so there is a place to start. And, and the first thing I would say is that we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. There have been people who were able to have productive and respectful and human warm conversations with others whose views were absolutely repugnant to them. And I tell the great story in the book about Zernona Clayton and Calvin Craig and and
0: and, and she was uh, and she was like a civil rights activist.
1: Yeah, and Calvin Craig was a grand dragon in the KKK. Yeah. And over the course of months they would just have conversations and then he announced he had a press conference and said I'm leaving the KKK. My mind has been changed by Zernona Clayton. You know, and I've spoken with Zernona a few times, and she said, I didn't try to change his mind. I just listened to him. She said, you know, there was nothing I, a black woman, was going to be able to say to him that was going to make any difference. And she also said Martin Luther King, she was a good friend of the King family. And she said, you know, he always said, just take the person where they are and accept them where they are. And, and so that's where you start. I would say let go of this idea that you're entering into a conversation in order to change someone's mind or educate them. Because that's always going to be frustrating. And that's probably where the anger comes from. Because that's not going to happen. So let go of that intention. And instead, enter into the conversation saying, okay, I'm going to learn something from this conversation. That's something you have control over.
0: So this story about Sir Nona Clayton is incredible. And, and, and I guess she, she would say that this isn't impossible. Yeah. And you you talk about some of these things in your book and in your TED Talk about ways that you can actually have constructive and, and productive conversations.
1: Right. And they're simple. They're not easy, <laughs> but they're simple. Number one, don't multitask. And I don't mean just set down your cell phone or your tablet or your car keys or whatever is in your hand. I mean... Be present. Be in that moment. Use open ended questions. In this case, take a cue from journalists. Start your questions with who, what, where, when, why, or how. Go with the flow. That means thoughts will come into your mind and you need to let them go out of your mind. We're sitting there having a conversation with someone and then we remember that time that we met Hugh Jackman in a coffee shop (laughs) and we stop listening. Stories and ideas are going to come to you. You need to let them come and let them go. Don't equate your experience with theirs. If they're talking about the trouble that they're having at work, don't tell them about how much you hate your job. It's not the same. It is never the same. All experiences are individual. And more importantly, it is not about you. One more rule, listen. I cannot tell you how many really important people have said that listening is perhaps the most, the number one most important skill that you could develop. And look, I know it takes effort and energy to actually pay attention to someone. But if you can't do that, you're not in a conversation. You're just two people shouting out barely related sentences in the same place.
0: You know, I find myself having like really serious um conversations with friends about things we disagree on and it can get pretty heated yeah and i try to employ a lot of these rules um but what do you do when your core values are just totally misaligned with the person that you're talking with like to to such an extent that that the things they believe just offend you to your core do you do you still engage
1: I do. And I, I can give you a, an example of this. So I am a mixed race person. Um, the last time my family lived in Georgia, we were owned. And I think most people would understand my feelings on the Confederate battle flag. But I have a number of friends that absolutely think that is about heritage and it's not about hate, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, And I was having one of these discussions with someone earlier. Hmm. And he started to say to me, well, I'm not going to talk about this with you because I know where you stand. Hmm. And I said, you know what? That actually frees us up. Just tell me what you think because here's the thing. Our views are opposed on this. But I am interested in your perspective why this is so important to you. And if I can just start from the outset and allay those expectations that someone's going to change my mind – Sometimes it just sort of relieves that pressure. Then it just becomes about hearing someone's perspective.
0: So you wouldn't respond to his argument? You would just listen to to what he said?
1: I might. Mm. I might. But I start by just listening and asking questions. But because he likes me and respects me, usually he leaves an opening for me to express my feelings. And I do. Um, Honestly, without condemnation. But, you know, it's... It's hard for people to open up like yeah, this. Yeah, it, It's hard. That makes you vulnerable.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because it's very true, and yet it creates a conflict because you think, well, the act of listening suggests that those views can be aired publicly. Like, like you know, the, the, there's some things that, that you could say people should just keep inside their heads because it's not acceptable to say them or hear them out.
1: Okay, but how well has that worked? Because that's been our strategy so far, yeah, and we're still fighting the civil war
0: look i i I think you're right about that i i I think that makes sense, but at the same time, I wonder whether. It's a one-way street, because by being willing to listen to somebody else, you're essentially sending a message that you are an open-minded person, and that other person may not be open-minded.
1: Yeah, but how do we as a society change that? You know, one of the things that struck me after the march in Charlottesville, they went and interviewed the mother of the man who murdered the anti-fascist protester. Yeah. And she was stunned at what he was involved in. And they said, did you not know? She said, no, 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 we never, we never talked about that stuff. We don't talk about politics. And I thought to myself, I wonder what would have changed in some of these minds if people actually didn't avoid these conversations and allowed human compassion to eventually work. Because I think when you get isolated into an ideological bubble, and you're only hearing people that agree with you, it pushes you further and further toward the fringes. And the dangerous situation we find ourselves in is that most Americans are now in an ideological bubble, whether they're on the right or the left. Yeah. So it's no longer going to be the fringes unless we begin to pop the bubble and hear opinions that we find repugnant. And so until we start... Listening to these opinions we don't like, it's going to get worse. Celeste Headley. Her book is
0: called "We Need to Talk: How to Have Conversations That Matter. You can find her entire talk at ted dot com. Do you find yourself like actively seeking out people who who disagree with you? Of course. I'm a rabbi. This is Jonathan Sachs. He was the chief rabbi of the UK for 22 years.
5: Some of my best conversations were with Richard Dawkins, who's probably one of the world's better-known atheists. I've had a wonderful conversation with Stephen Pinker, the neuroscientist, uh, and also with his wife, Rebecca Goldstein, who wrote a novel called 36 uh, Arguments for the Existence of God, subtitled A Work of Fiction. So I I have lots of public conversations with people who totally disagree with everything I stand for.
0: Rabbi Sachs has been thinking a lot about how we talk to each other. And more and more, he's seeing people sorting themselves into like-minded groups, people focusing more on themselves as individuals. And he argues, just like Celeste Headley does, that without dialogue, it's only going to get worse. Here's Jonathan Sachs on the TED stage.
5: This is a fateful moment in the history of the West. We've seen divisive elections and divided societies. We've seen a growth of extremism, all of it fueled by anxiety, uncertainty, and fear. And one way into it is to see that perhaps the most simple way into a culture and into an age is to ask, what do people worship? People have... Worship so many different things, the sun, the stars, the storm. Some people worship many gods, some one, some none. What do we worship? I think future anthropologists will take a look at the books we read on self-help, self-realization. They'll look at the way we talk about morality as being true to oneself, the way we talk about politics as a matter of individual rights. And I think they'll conclude that what we worship in our time is the self, the me, the I. But when we have too much of the I and too little of the we, we can find ourselves vulnerable, fearful, and alone. The trouble with Google filters, Facebook friends, and reading the news by narrowcasting rather than broadcasting means that we're surrounded almost entirely By people like us, whose views, whose opinions, whose prejudices even, are just like ours. I think we need to renew those face-to-face encounters with the people not like us.
0: It's much easier today, Rabbi Sachs, to to sort ourselves, right? To to find the people who we agree with and who agree with us. And it's not just easier, it's, it's actually happening
5: exactly so. And, and, and there's a terrible impoverishment in that, as well as a great enrichment, because it's the people not like us who make us grow. Uh, it's the people like us who just make us more and more fixed in our beliefs. And I, I see this happening in universities. You know, universities are creating these so-called safe spaces, which says universities should be a place where you never hear somebody say something that might offend you. Now, I think that's an absolute abdication of what a university should be about. Universities should be a place where the universe comes, I mean, where you meet every different kind of person with every different kind of belief. And for me, a safe space is a space in which people listen respectfully to those whose views are completely different from their own.
0: What are the the consequences for our societies, for our civilization, if we continue to sort
5: in that way? Well, the beauty of a nation state is it says that a whole bunch of people who happen to be living in the same territory are united by a common and collective responsibility. Each of us responsible for the welfare of all insofar as it lies within our power. It's like uh, one big enormous um, palace that we live in. And I'm afraid what has happened in the West is that we've turned societies into a series of hotels. You pay your bills, which are your taxes, and in return you get a room in which you can do whatever you like so long as you don't disturb the people to the left or right of you. The trouble is um, nobody ever belongs to a hotel. So I'm afraid we're losing this concept of society as a place where all sorts of different people come together in the common aim of pursuing the common good. My favorite phrase in all of politics, very American phrase, is we the people. Why we the people? Because it says that we all share collective responsibility for our collective future. And that's how things really are and should be. Have you noticed how magical thinking has taken over our politics? So we say, all you've got to do is elect this strong leader, and he or she will solve all our problems for us. Believe me, that is magical thinking. And then we get the extremes, the far right, the far left, The extreme religious and the extreme anti-religious, the far-right dreaming of a golden age that never was, the far-left dreaming of a utopia that never will be, and the religious and anti-religious equally convinced that all it takes is God or the absence of God to save us from ourselves That, too, is magical thinking, because the only people who will save us from ourselves, is we, the people, all of us together.
0: Okay, so you look at where we are this moment in our history and the increasing absence of dialogue and exchange and and of understanding among people who don't agree. So are you optimistic? I mean, do you think there's hope?
5: Hmm. Guy, I'm going to make a distinction that I think is absolutely essential because very often we confuse the word hope and the word optimism when we think they mean the same thing. Actually, they don't at all. Optimism is the belief that things are going to get better. Hope is the belief that if we work hard enough together, we can make things better. Optimism is a passive virtue. Hope is an active one. It needs no courage, only a certain naivete. And I say no Jew who knows our people's history can be an optimist. What we do do is hope. So, of course, I have hope. And I really seek out these opportunities for talking across divides. Because what none of us can achieve alone, all of us can achieve together.
0: Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. You can watch his entire talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Dialogue and Exchange this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, you can go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel-Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. And you can also write us directly. That's Hour at NPR.org. And you can tweet us. It's at Hour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.